You're listening to The New Paris. After a brief summer hiatus, I'm back with all new episodes of the show, and I'm excited to kick things off with a fellow journalist whose work I've been following closely. For the last two years, Karina Peiser has been a visiting fellow for the Institute of Current World Affairs, pursuing her research in French secularism in public high schools in immigrant-heavy areas. But she's also been a leading voice, writing for The Atlantic and The New Republic about other equally important human rights and social justice issues, from the Gilets Jaunes movement to femicide and asylum seekers. As she prepares to return to the U.S., I wanted to have her on to discuss some of these stories and what most impacted her experience these last two years. Karina, welcome. Hello. Um, tell me a little bit about your background, because I know you've, you previously lived in France. You went to Sciences Po for your graduate work. Um, what did you hope to achieve in coming back? Yeah, so I, I had studied abroad first in France, in Paris, in 2010, and then I came back for graduate school in 2012 at Sciences Po. And this fellowship was kind of an opportunity to do in-depth research for two years in a journalistic capacity, but also taking my time to really delve into the subject matter. And like you said, I started looking at the question of secularism in schools and then branched out to a number of related societal issues. Um, and what is the sort of goal now that you're, I know that's a bit, that's a big, broad, scary question, but what, um, you know, you've amassed this incredible portfolio of, of work I imagine your your interest in France is not just going to disappear because you're no. you're moving back. No, certainly not. But that said, I I think what's interesting is that the issues that I've been studying are about national identity. And between France and the U.S., there are these strong national myths of France calling itself this colorblind assimilationist society and the U.S. calling itself this melting pot, this multicultural, uh, you know, community where different groups of people can coexist and keep their identities. And the fact of the matter is, is that in both countries, xenophobia and intolerance are defining politics. Um, so, you know, I mean, I plan to continue watching France. Hopefully I'll have the opportunity to come back to Paris to work or live. Um, but in the meantime, I've been thinking a lot about the parallels between the two countries. And I think going back into the U.S., there are a lot of important lessons. Uh, especially now. Yeah. It's a <laughs> very interesting over. time. Well, in all places, really, mm -hmm. uh, especially from a news perspective. But um, it, it, as of as, as of this week, so we're what, September 24? Fourth, yep. fifth. Uh, there's been some interesting developments developments in the in in world news yep. uh, just this week. So yes. you might be going back to some very interesting potential opportunities. So m much of the work, though, as you said, you started with French secularism in schools, um, but then you you branched out, and a lot of this is very heavy material. I mean, you're talking about. Uh, violence against women, the social injustice at the source of the Gilets Jaunes movement, um, Islamophobia, you've covered the rise of the far right. Um, how difficult was it for you to dive into these topics, like emotionally? Because I know that, you know, there are times I'll, I'll, I'll cover things, and especially with, you know, the book, it's, you can get really a, close to people, and you can also feel very unnerved by the things you're unveiling. So how do you, how was that process for you? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's always a little bit of difficulty. I think that, you know, on the one hand, when you approach things, you know, it's your work, you have to write an article about it. You have this kind of reflex to dull your 
emotional response going into it, which can be helpful to a certain extent and also is not useful when it's a story that is a human experience that needs to be shared. Um, I'd say that one of the times I found the most difficulty divorcing my own kind of emotional reaction to writing about the subject matter and kind of trying to illustrate the story in an objective way for for readers um, was when I reported on migration um, Mm. and I met so many asylum seekers, especially teenagers who were just kind of had gotten to France after this awful, uh, awful journey. Um, A lot of them coming from sub-Saharan Africa. A lot of them had passed through Libya, which every single asylum seeker I met described Libya as this like awful hellscape of torture and enslavement. Um, And, you know, I mean, those are, I, I don't really, I don't really think that they're is a need to put the emotional r- response aside or kind of try mm. to, to quell it um, in the context of those interviews. I think that it's without that, you can't ask the right questions and have the conversations that make for compelling uh, storytelling. And in, 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 in that particular case, um, were they all trying to get specifically to France or was England the end destination? It was a mix. A lot of them, especially from Francophone Africa, sure. wanted to come to France. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some that were trying to get to the UK. I did that reporting um, on the French-Italian border. Um, so it was migrants who had passed through Italy. And for a lot of them, the the end destination was France. And is it is it simply... I mean, I remember a while back there was some reports about how many of uh, many of these asylum seekers knew that France wasn't necessarily the most hospitable place um, and that they might come across, even if they made it, that they would come across some serious resistance. Um, did you get the sense that these individuals, um, you know, were sort of looking to France as though it was going to save them or as sort of, well, we have no other options? I think both. I think those two things can't necessarily be divorced from each mm-hmm. other. Um, a lot of them, a lot of people I spoke to said that Italy was much more hostile uh, ah. to asylum seekers than France in terms of just kind of public attitudes. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's not it's not really a, a selective undertaking. It's, no. It's, people are trying to get away, trying to leave more than trying to go somewhere specific. And have you observed in through this research or in similar research how France's um, policies toward asylum seekers has changed or evolved? Yeah, I think, I mean, Europe's asylum policies and immigration policies have evolved and France's, you know, there have been some changes that have come from the top, from the French government. A lot of them, though, have been in reaction to policies that happened in Italy under mm-hmm. Salvini. Um, so, for example, on the border, Matteo Salvini, the interior, who was interior minister, cl- shut essentially shut down the the border, um, which kind of required a different response on the French mm-hmm. side of the border, and you know, um, and there are just huge problems with the immigration system in Europe entirely, the Dublin system, which actually now there's a kind of more frank conversation about reforming, has put the burden on Italy especially because Mm -hmm. the Dublin system essentially means that a migrant, an asylum seeker, has to initiate the settlement process in the country that they arrive in, which is often Italy, just geographically speaking. Sure. Um, And so I think it's kind of a confluence of policy failures and then, of course, you know, 
racism and xenophobia that has created this situation where this problem is seeming so difficult to resolve. So, you, I mean, you've covered things like that, and then more recently, I read one of your um, your stories, which I guess was specifically tied to a a big movement in France um, to stop, um, well, encouraging the government to do more to stop violence against women because the shocking figure is that one in three women in France are um, abused by their partners or killed by their partners. I think that it's a woman every, every three days is, is murdered by murdered her, by her partner or ex partner or ex partner, yeah. um, and that puts France third in Western Europe yeah. under Germany and, and Switzerland. So the, I mean, these are pretty shocking figures, and you know, I, again, I think that people don't. I mean, people tend to think of France as being this very progressive place, but still not a lot. I know we we smile at this, but it you know, I remember when I first arrived, I did think of France as quite progressive. And I, I would not necessarily say that now. Um, although I don't know that I'd say that at about many places, right, frankly. Think, yeah, yeah. Um, do you, I mean, what was it like reporting that? I mean, it is, it, it's, it's horrific. And also how do you feel the government is, is or isn't responding to these, yeah. these cries? Yeah. I mean, so, so that story, um, the, one of the women I interviewed for it, her sister had been murdered, um, by her, by her husband, um, and just the fact that I could that I was interviewing a woman who had never really thought about these issues until four months ago, and it was because her sister's body was found stuffed in a suitcase in floating um, in a river in France. The fact that there are people who have these experiences and then are willing and able to, you know, go to the press and share these stories in order to kind of create this greater. Uh, societal reckoning or, or spark action from the government is so heartening. Um, just the fact that, you know, I mean, I can't imagine what that experience was like for her. And, you know, she's speaking clearly with me about and, and you know, talking about the, the nuances of, of government policy about this. Um, what I think is kind of – the progressivism thing I think is, is interesting. Um, everyone likes to call themselves progressive. And I, when I moved to France the first time, did have this idea of France being so much more progressive than the U.S. I think that one of the things I've learned with all of this reporting, especially on secularism, and maybe we can get to that yeah, um, absolutely. later on, but I also had done some reporting on the Me Too movement here, mm -hmm. which was slower to take off than it was in the U.S. There is this kind of cultural conservatism here that – is more powerful than meets the eye. Um, and in the context of this, uh, domestic violence issue, I think that, I think that it's, that that is kind of interfering in the response. Um, the, the woman who I, who I was just talking about, whose sister was murdered was kind of shocked that there's this endurance of this narrative about, you know, a crime of passion. Right. Um, and, and the fact that that dynamic, that that's even something that, can come into this discussion is is horrifying. Um, and then, you know, I mean, the government is doing some things. They have basically one feminist activist was telling me that they've made demands to the government and the government meets them minus like 20 percent. Mm -hmm. So they ask for 1,500 beds in shelters and the government gives them 1,000 or something like that. So it's not nothing. Um, but on some things, you know, for, for parental custody, now they're changing a law so that as soon as a man kills his partner, he immediately loses custody over his children, which is like 
to me a bit absurd. Right. It should be, you know, the first time that there's a complaint filed against him or that he sends his wife or ex-wife or partner threatening text messages. Um, or to he, the hospital. Exactly. or Yeah. It's like you have to kill to lose custody over your children. Is that... But custody, battle, custody battles in general have been um, very challenging, I think, even you know, in, in a normal relationship here, I think yeah. the, huh. the government is very keen to, to uh, the government or the courts are, are, are always trying to keep the father present. And this sort of relates to some of the other issues that, you know, we're seeing, you know, the discussion around uh, IVF in, in, which is called PMA, uh, procreate, um, uh, medically assisted procreation. I always have to do that. Um, and and how currently the law is that um, lesbian couples or single women are not able to access IVF, and so this is this has been going on for years and years. And the bioethics committee uh, said that it should be move, you know, that, that it should be allowed, and things can move forward. And so it's still not there's still no decision uh, as of today. But this goes back to this very con- uh, conservative belief that you can't take a father out of the out of the formula out of the situation and that it's not natural and all of this and so it doesn't surprise me that much that they would then um be more inclined to favor ways to make sure the father stays in the situation Mm -hmm. even in relationships where the woman is being abused and then there's the issue of the police not taking things serious seriously yeah yeah and those for sure could be stories we'd hear anywhere in the world but in france it's seen it's it's been particularly Shocking, I think, mm-hmm. um, of late. Yeah. Young women who, you know, say that they've been raped or assaulted and, you know, the police sort of shrugging their shoulders. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- I think that that is something that is part of a, a larger social problem is first a lack of representation of women in positions of power. Mm-hmm. That's clear. Um, if men are making the laws and, you know, calling all of the shots, then it is more difficult, I mean, more difficult. It is, they do not take women's experiences into consideration as much as, uh, you know, if more women were involved in that decision-making. Yeah. It's, it's, there's no easy way to talk, I mean, to talk about it. I think, you know, you and I spend a lot of time on Twitter. And so we see a lot of these, um, these stories come out and they go viral and then there seems to be no recourse. There's, yeah. n- there's no solution to them. Right. And it does make it a little bit scary being that we're both women sitting here um, to think that if we needed to go report something, you know, it's just, I, I don't know. I think that's, that's a story that's going to keep unfolding. And you see it sort of also with p- police brutality, with, with the Jaune movement too, and, yeah. and acts of extreme violence. I think there's a, a, a real resistance on the part of the government to acknowledge these severe shortcomings. Right. But I guess that puts France a little bit closer to the U.S., doesn't it? But back to your, you know, the, the, the core of your research. So you're talking about secularism, and this is sort of the never-ending never playground of, of discussion in France. Um, I, maybe you want to um, describe how French laïcité goes beyond normal or sort of American understandings of separation of church and state and secularism. Right. So, I mean, in France, like in the U.S. and a host of other countries, there's a separation between church and state. Um, In France, there's kind of also this expectation of neutrality, um, that public servants and the state are neutral to all religions and religious groups. Um, That has kind of grounding in the French Revolution and the the power of of the Catholic Church that that used to be, you know. 
But over time, I think it's been reinterpreted, and especially in the past three decades, especially basically since decolonization, it's been reinterpreted to kind of confine religion to the public sphere. Um, and that is perhaps the most dominant interpretation today among the political class, and this is across the spectrum, um, across the political spectrum. Um, and especially since the 1980s, that interpretation has been leveraged more than against any other religion, against Islam. Um, and so my research was looking at the way that those narratives around secularism kind of changed or didn't change or were... Uh, exacerbated in the aftermath of the 2015 terrorist mm. attacks. Um, and I looked at schools because since laïcité, French secularism, has become so contentious in contemporary French history, schools have largely been one of the battlegrounds. Um, you know, like you said, it's this never-ending topic about the headscarf especially. And it's in schools where, I mean, in the 80s, the, the first kind of affaire, as they like mm -hmm. to call them here. They really do. They call it l'affaire du voile. Exactly. L'affaire du voile, the first one in 1989, um, which I probably shouldn't get into the nitty-gritty of. But basically, no, but it's, this ongoing debate yeah. about whether or not people, I mean, now they can't legally, but wear any religious signs at, at public schools. Um And, yeah, so I interviewed uh, hundreds of, of middle school and high school students, primarily in, in the banlieue of Paris, um, to understand kind of how they interpreted the debates. I think that we talk a lot about what young people say and think, especially teenagers, but then people don't actually ask them. Um, and they have really interesting things to say. So what were some of the things they had to say? Because also yeah. I think we don't hear enough from the people who are actually affected by these policies yeah we just hear a lot of you know talking heads and yeah um yeah i mean a lot of talking heads if you look at every tv talk show conversation about the headscarf it's usually a bunch of uh white men having that mm -hmm. conversation about, yep. about something that that muslim women wear but or a lot of women <laughs> yeah. who are clearly uh, they're they're the sa they have a savior complex Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, the French colonial past has a lot to do with the endurance of these controversies, um, which plenty of French people point out. Um, but yeah, something that I found interesting was that a lot of the students, so I was asking them how they felt when they heard about laïcité, in what context did they hear about it? Mm -hmm. Almost all of them said in the context of, of Islam. Um, that since the attacks, you know, there had been this this increase in, in Islamophobia, which, which was true definitely in the immediate aftermath mm -hmm. of the attacks. I think the, the numbers have kind of leveled out. But just looking at the way that Islam is talked about in the public sphere, I mean, that's not something that teenagers miss. Um, what I did find interesting was that there was kind of a, a split among these, among, among teenagers. And I'm saying anywhere between 12 years old and 17 years mm -hmm. old. I'd say that half thought that the law banning the headscarf, banning all religious symbols, but that very clearly um, targets the, the headscarf. Um, and that's including from people who crafted the law who have told me that. That is not just some value judgment. Right. It was very much at the time a response to um, the headscarf in public schools. So I'd say half of the students I interviewed and passed out questionnaires to 
said that the law was against religious freedom, that it showed that France was, you know, neocolonial or Islamophobic, et cetera, et cetera. They talked about the U.S. and the U.K. as these more tolerant societies. But then about half said that they think the law is a good thing. Um, and that includes um, kids of teenagers of, of immigrant background, mm-hmm. uh, teenagers from families that are practicing Muslims, um, said very clearly, no, I think this is a good thing. Um, and when I asked why, they said that it protects the students who would wear the headscarf from discrimination within the walls of the school, which is the reverse logic of why the law was put in place. Right. The law was put in place because the education ministry thought that there was a proselytizing effect from <laughs> wearing the headscarf in public schools. So it was this strange internalization of intolerant logic that, mm-hmm. that made it seem like, well, we have to protect ourselves from discrimination, and so we're going to assimilate. It's kind of the, yeah. <laughs> well, and more recently, there's been greater uh, controversy about with parents yeah. wearing the the headscarf to take kids on field trips, essentially, and that technically that's outside the border of the school. Yeah. You know, you're not on school property. Um, and there have been campaigns that have been, that I've just seen, you know, on the internet in the last, in the last week, um, sort of incur- showing that like this, these two things are not incompatible. Yeah. Uh, and then you had some very unprogressive thinkers, um, likening the the wearing of the the headscarf to some pretty horrific outfits as though you know some man in in essentially like a a thong and like a, a like a leotard was going to go yeah. pick up the kids from school so, yeah. or, or you know like very flamboyantly dressed or very inappropriate like but but not appropriate for being in public anywhere yeah right? i mean there was also one so so the the issue at stake is that the stu- parents union uh, had a kind of a flyer that said it had a picture of a woman wearing a hijab with her child, and it said, "I go on school field trips, and so what?" Kind right, of to right. Just be like, "Well, it's okay." And also, it's you know, I mean, as far as the legal texts go, they have the right to go on these school field trips. And so, yeah, there are a lot of these reactionary kind of public intellectuals or whatever made these these spoofs. And yeah, there was one of a man wearing a thong, etc. But there was also one of, of ISIS fighters. Oh, yes. That that, of course. To, How did I not mention like, that? That was the worst. Yeah. But that is the mental leap that I think is just so quickly and so often made in these conversations is like goes from you show your religion, Islam, and also terrorism. No, I mean, this is, and it's shocking because these images then get spread within, you know, the snap of a finger. And, and this is how these debates get fueled and, and very, um, you know, with, with a lot of anger, Yeah, you know, and it almost, no one is, is being heard at this point. So there seems to be no, currently there's no resolution for this issue. Mm -mm. Um, but again, just to say that the the headscarf remains the the never ending topic of conversation in this country. But yeah. so you you encountered that you know quite heavily. Yeah. Um, secularism, obviously, we're, I guess this is going to be. I mean, given some of the incidents that we've seen in the U.S. in New Zealand, you know, this is going to be perhaps a, an issue everywhere moving forward. Um, is that something you're hoping to continue following? I think it's kind of unavoidable. Just, I mean, secularism, the the conversation about secularism in France is as much a conversation just kind of about 
what kind of society we want to live in. Um, tolerance and whether or not, you know, whether or not people can live together. Mm. Um, and yeah, I, I think that it will be impossible to avoid that subject, especially going back to the U.S., going back to New York City, um, where so much of these issues kind of play out uh, on a regular basis. And whenever a foreign correspondent talks about any of these issues, particularly laïcité, because, you know, the French claim they're the only ones who could possibly understand it, um, you know, you, some journalists have gotten quite a lot of backlash anytime they've written for, you know, big American or international publications. Um, did you come against any resistance yeah, totally. In your work? Totally. I mean, I don't have a huge Twitter presence, but the only time that I was like, should I turn off my notifications <laughs> was uh, when I wrote an article for the New Republic last year. There was a student union. I'm sure you remember oh, this. Oh, yeah. yes. It was, one of the, it was one of the best headscarf controversies of the past couple of years. Um, the best. One of the most absurd. The president of, the, of a student union wore a, a headscarf and the same public intellectual who made that uh, spoof on the parents union uh, poster um lb yes yeah. <laughs> basically launched a who is a self-proclaimed progressive we must add um a former member of the socialist party in france and etc cetera, etc cetera. um right so i wrote an article about this essentially coordinated campaign against this poor teenager who i mean she was 19 but she was a student union president and she went on tv to talk about education ministry reforms <laughs> And nobody actually talked about what she was talking about. And for the next, like, month, there were – it was just dominated headlines. And so um, I received a lot of pushback and a lot of trolling for that article, and so did Ida Alami, oh. um, who profiled the student union president for The New York Times. And so both of our articles were just – and I think I think James McCauley at The Washington Post. I mean, basically Everybody. everyone wrote – Everyone gets yeah. their yeah, – yeah, everyone gets their yeah. – their, their, their moment of uh, – a French, uh, well, it's, it's it's like they just want to instigate this debate that they don't believe you can win anyway. Right. It's it's an argument you're not allowed to win because you couldn't possibly understand, given that you weren't born here. Except right. they often misunderstand what laïcité is supposed to totally, totally supposed to do anyway. Yeah. Just outrageous. Yeah. So you've covered a lot of really interesting things, and but but I'm sure you did some fun, lighthearted things while you were in Paris. Also, yes. <laughs> what are you sort of? How are you spending your you know, your last days in, in Paris at the moment? Um, yeah, no, this is my favorite city uh, on earth that I've encountered. <laughs> Perhaps there's another city that I will like better, but I haven't found it yet. I, I spend a lot of time walking around Paris. Um, I don't really think that there's anything better to, th there's, I mean, Paris has plenty of amazing things to do. The museums are incredible. The food's amazing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but just walking around this city is by far the most gratifying thing I do on a week, weekly or daily basis. Um, and and so that's something you're going to try to recreate at home? Yeah, New York isn't so bad. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. But there is something, especially when you're as interested in, in the themes that you're interested in, there's something about being here. Yeah. And I would agree, best city in the world. Yeah. But, you know that maybe I need to have you back uh, on, on, a, on, a, on a future trip to talk about the merits of... Paris in, in, in the world's best cities. Um, oh, sure. <laughs> I'm sure we could argue that endlessly. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing the work that you're going to do from here. And I'm going to make sure that all the listeners have access to some of these big stories you've worked on in the show notes. So everybody listening, you will be able to check out some of the 
the very important reporting that Karina has done in the last two years and will go on to do. Um, until next time, you can check out all of the previous episodes of The New Paris on Apple Podcasts, World Radio Paris, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever else you might download your podcasts. Karina, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. A bientôt. Thank you.